It's great to be with you again. And uh, what we're going to talk about this afternoon is fear. All right, fear. What do you fear the most? What are your biggest and deepest fears in life? Anybody want to share your biggest fear with the whole group? Or are you too afraid to do so? <laughs> all right, here we go, right here. What's your biggest fear? I hate spiders. Spiders, all right, all right. We got anybody else okay, afraid of spiders? Yeah, what about snakes? Is that a big one? Snakes, all right. Okay, okay, we got some snake lovers, but some snake fears too. Okay, uh, what about public speaking? Anybody afraid of public speaking? Okay, would any of you want to be up here giving the talk? Okay, I'm horrified of public speaking myself, just to let you know. Um, my biggest fear in life is probably kidney stones. Okay, any other guys with me on that? All right. <laughs> it's worse than childbirth, I hear. Uh, some people fear death. Maybe their own death or maybe someone else's death, someone close to them. Uh, some people fear the future, thinking about the future, all the question marks that hang over what's out there in the future creates a real sense of fear. What does my future hold? Where will I be tomorrow? What will I be doing? What's my life going to look like in a week, a month, a year, 10 years from now? Uh, that can be a source of fear. Will I get, the, get into the school I want or get the job I want? Some people fear loneliness or rejection more than just about anything else. They'll do almost anything to be included, to feel a part of things. Some people fear not getting married someday. Some people fear getting married someday. Fears can go either way there. It's important to assess our fears because our fears drive so much of our behaviors. Our fears drive what we do uh, in so many ways. But here's the crucial question for you that I really want to focus on. Where does God fit into your fears? What if I told you that you should fear God most of all, even more than spiders? What if you should fear God most of all, and in fearing God, that fear would drive all your other fears away? What if in fearing God, all your other fears would fade away into nothing? What if fearing God actually relieves all our other fears so you become fearless? When we fear God, God, our fears, relieves. If we're going to be cutting-edge, old-fashioned Christians, we've got to recover the fear of God. It used to be that you would describe a godly man, a man who was mature in his faith, a man who was wise in Christ. He would be referred to as a God-fearing man. Uh, but, you know, you never really hear that language anymore. I think we do well to recover that language. I think that's a good way of talking about mature Christian men. Uh, but you don't hear much about the fear of God in the church today. Uh, most churches don't talk about it. Uh, there's not a lot of contemporary Christian music that talks about the fear of God or that would even inspire the fear of God. In many ways, it's just... The opposite, if you're going to sing about the fear of God, you probably have to sing a psalm or an older hymn. Most Christians today, it seems, want a friendly, indulgent God, a kind of Santa Claus in the sky who will give us what we want, who's not to be feared, but maybe to be befriended instead, a God we can approach casually, not a God we have to fear. 
I want to read to you a couple passages here. I'm going to read from Proverbs chapter 1 and Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So the very beginning of Proverbs and the very end of Ecclesiastes. And, of course, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are part of what we call the Bible's wisdom literature. There's a group of books right there in the middle of your Bible, uh, lumped together, that are given for the purpose of imparting wisdom. So they're known as the wisdom literature. And I want you to notice a couple of things here. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes go together. And Proverbs 1 talks about the fear of the Lord, the beginning of Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes 12, the end of Ecclesiastes, talks about the fear of God. And so I think there's something to that. The fear of God envelops our search for wisdom. The search for wisdom, the quest for wisdom, growing in wisdom, begins and ends with the fear of God. Now also, it's another thing to consider, uh, the wisdom literature is especially for who? For what demographic, for what group of people is the wisdom literature especially given to? We've got a bunch in this room right here. Young men. The wisdom literature is, now of course young women benefit from it too, Older men and women benefit from the wisdom literature as well. But it's especially addressed to young men. The wisdom literature is especially a father speaking to a son. We see that particularly in Proverbs. Why do you think young men need especially to be reminded to fear God? Why would young men need to be taught especially to fear God? Well, it's because young men are often brash, arrogant, cocky, And therefore, a lot of young men are actually fools because they are wise in their own eyes. And so they won't listen to correction or counsel from anyone else. They are what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. They scoff at instruction, those who are trying to teach them. Keep that in mind as we read these passages as well. Guys, you need to understand true manliness. True manliness starts with the fear of God. The fear of God is the ultimate red pill. It will put you in touch with reality. It will put you in touch with true manhood. If you want to be a real man, you have to fear God. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together show us that. So let me read to us from Proverbs chapter 1 and Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then from the very end of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, teach us now to fear you as we should. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Is God's existence good news? Is it good news that God exists? Is God good? Is God safe? Think here with me about the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I bet most of you here are familiar with that book. The very first time the Pevenzi children are in Narnia and they hear about Aslan, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver begin to explain who Aslan is, this is what happens. This is how the conversation goes. Who is Aslan, asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know he's the king, he's the lord of the whole wood. And the conversation proceeds. Uh, He says, you'll understand when you see him. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him. "Is Is he a man, asked Lucy. 
Ass on a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. All right, now one thing you need to know is there is often more good theology in children's stories than there is in the academic textbooks they give to students at seminary. And this is one of those places. Lewis has captured it so well here. God is good, but he isn't safe. Can you meet God without your knees knocking? Can you stand before God without your knees knocking? Do we see God as dangerous? It's one of the great problems in the world and even in the church today. No one seems to think God is dangerous. But you need to understand, it is dangerous to not see God as dangerous. Because you're not dealing with the real God, the true God, unless you see him as dangerous. If we treat God as if he were always safe, as if we could approach him casually, as if we could manage him and perhaps even manipulate him, we're going to be misled. God is dangerous. Just take an example of this from the teaching of Jesus. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can only kill the body and no more. Fear him who has power to cast you into hell. Jesus says, don't fear men, fear God. God is far more dangerous than any man. Or consider Hebrews chapter 10, which describes those who fall away. And it says those who fall away from their faith in God have nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will destroy the enemies of God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of this God. Franklin Roosevelt was famous for saying, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But in truth, the only thing we have to fear is the Lord himself. The fear of the Lord is a constant theme throughout the scriptures. This is not just an Old Testament thing. It's there in the New Testament as well, as I've already shown you. One thing we see is that there are different types of fear, some of which are appropriate for us, some of which would not be appropriate. So we do need to make some distinctions here. It's interesting, one of the very first human emotions described in scripture is fear. After Adam and Eve have sinned in Genesis 3, God comes to them in the garden and God begins to interrogate them. He says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and hid, for I was afraid. Now, should he have been afraid? Should he have been fearful of God at that point? Yes, of course. You bet he should have been afraid. He should have been terrified. He had a fearful expectation of judgment, of punishment. He was about to fall into the hands of the living God. Elsewhere, Scripture identifies God as the one who is to be feared, even naming God as fear. In Genesis 31, Jacob swears by the fear of his father Isaac. God's name is fear. He is the fear of Isaac, the fear of Israel. God is the one who is to be feared, feared above all. 
In the book of Exodus, the Egyptian midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to kill the Jewish baby boys. But they refused to perform these abortions, and they deceived Pharaoh about it. And Exodus 1 tells us they did this. They did not go through with Pharaoh's infanticide program uh, because they feared God. Because they feared God more than Pharaoh, they disobeyed Pharaoh in order to obey God. Fearing God made them fearless. Fearing God kept them faithful, even at great personal risk, great personal cost. Fearing God made them fearless when it came to the tyrant. The midwives didn't have to fear the tyrant Pharaoh because they feared God more. I mean, here you see our fears drive our actions. Who do you fear? What do you fear the most? And Exodus 1 goes on to tell us, because they feared God, because they did what was right out of this fear of God, God blessed them, God rewarded them, giving them families of their own. In Exodus chapter 20, when Israel's out Mount Sinai receiving the law, Moses says, as the mountain is covered with lightning and the, the, the roll of thunder and smoke, Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that his fear may be before you, that you may not sin against him. Moses says, in effect, don't fear, don't fear this thunder and lightning and smoke. Don't fear the storm on Mount Sinai. Fear God the one who has sent the storm. And fear God, why? So you will not sin against him. This is fear that drives obedience. Uh, those who don't repent uh, won't repent because they don't fear God. They don't care what God thinks, and so they don't do what God says. And they don't care what God thinks because they don't fear him. In fact, I think this, this is worth looking at a little bit more. What's the connection between fearing God and not sinning that Moses is getting at there in the book of Exodus. It's not just the fear of God's punishment. Okay, I said there are different distinctions to be made here. We don't have to fear God's punishment if we are in Christ. Uh, God's love, God's perfect love, casts out that fear of punishment. We don't have to fear the punishment anymore, but we do fear God himself. Perfect love drives out fear of punishment. It does not drive out fear of God. We're still to fear God himself. Fear means recognizing the greatness of God, the godness of God, recognizing God's glory and beauty and holiness, his goodness, his worthiness. Fear means you are in awe of God. You are amazed at who God is. And of course, the only way you can be amazed by who God is is knowing who God is. So fear is the product of knowing God as he's revealed himself to us in his word and in his world. To fear God means you fear displeasing Him more than anything else. And why do you fear displeasing Him? Because you love Him. You love Him the most. Fear cannot be collapsed into love and faith, but fear accompanies love and faith. Fear of God and love of God actually go together. We might think of those as opposites. If I fear God, I don't love Him, or if I love Him, I don't have to fear Him. But actually in Scripture we find they go together. Fear is the recognition that in God's greatness, he is worthy of our loyalty and love. It's what theologians have sometimes called filial fear. That word filial meaning sonship, having to do with being a son. It's the fear that a child has for his parent, that a son has for his father. That's the kind of fear here. A child can both fear his father and love his father at the same time. 
A child can both recognize his father's power and authority over him as well as see his father's goodness and grace. And you see those things at the same time. Good earthly fathers, therefore, teach us what it means to fear God and that fear and love can go together. They can accompany one another. To fear means to revere, to respect, to hold in high regard, to be in awe of. That's what Moses is commanding the Israelites, that kind of fear. Further, this is a fear that's compatible with joy. Again, we might think that fear and joy can't go together. It's got to be one or the other. But there are a lot of passages in Scripture that link fear in God with joy. Psalm 2.11, David says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You can actually rejoice with trembling. That's the kind of joy we have in God's presence. It's the kind of joy the Pavensi children would have in Aslan's presence. Trembling, but joyfully. Psalm 118.4 says, Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Fearing God and knowing His love are linked. This is a fear even that's compatible with friendship. So while there's a sense in which because of this fear, we know we can't approach God casually, we have to approach God reverently, there is a kind of intimacy there, an intimacy that can be described as friendship. Psalm 25.14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. This is a fear that embraces God's mercy. Psalm 31.19 says, How great is your goodness towards those who fear you and take refuge in you. So when we have this kind of fear of God, we don't run from God like Adam and Eve. We run to God and take refuge in Him. Psalm 130 says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because God is a God who forgives, we fear Him. Indeed, throughout Scripture, fear is connected to a number of other things. Fear is connected to worship. You might think, well, if we fear God, we're going to flee from his presence. But no, we approach God, we come to God, but we come to God in a fearful and reverent kind of way. So Hebrews 12 describes the church's worship. This is describing the new covenant worship of the church, worship that takes place in the heavenly sanctuary. And it concludes this way, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us worship God with reverence and godly fear. That's how we're to worship God in the New Covenant, with reverence and godly fear. When Scripture wants to sum up righteousness, it's described as fearing God. This is true in the Psalms. We, read, we sang Psalm 128 this morning. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. That sums up his righteousness, his right response to who God is and how God has revealed himself. And the flip side of that, when Scripture wants to sum up wickedness, it's described as a refusal or Failure to fear God. To not fear God is the essence of sin. When the psalmist is summing up what it means to be wicked, it says there is no fear of God before their eyes. When qualifications are given for officers in the church, when they're stipulated in Scripture, this is the kind of man who you want leading your church. Scripture says, choose men who fear God. Job, who we're told is one of the three most righteous men to ever live, Job is described as a man who is righteous, and he's righteous because he fears God. His outward obedience is the expression of his inner fear. Gentiles who turned away from their idols to trust in Israel's God, they turned away from the gods of the nations to trust the, the true and living God, the God of Israel, 
those Gentiles became known as God-fearers. Gentile God-fearers. This summed up their way of responding to God. They fear the true God, and that's why they've turned away from idols. In Acts chapter 9, you see this. These believers are described as those who live in the fear of the Lord, these first Gentiles, among the first Gentiles to come into the church. Fearing God is connected with trusting God. You know, we've seen it goes with loving God, worshiping God, rejoicing in God. Fear of God is not the same as trusting in God. I wouldn't say you can collapse fear into trust, but they're closely linked to one another. And again, the opposite is also true. Those who reject God are described as those who do not fear him. In Luke chapter 18, when Jesus gives the parable of the wicked judge, he describes the wicked judge as one who did not fear God or care for man. The essence of man's depravity is not fearing God. God blesses those who fear him. He will condemn those who do not. Proverbs says a man who fears the Lord hates evil, which means a man who does not fear God loves evil. The place in Scripture where the fear of God is explored most fully is the wisdom literature. That's where we began in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have a great deal to show us about fearing the Lord, what it means to fear the Lord in a very practical kind of way in our day-to-day lives. And Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, of course, go together. They show us what it means to fear God in practice, what it means to live a life of wisdom. But there are some interesting differences, interesting ways in which you can contrast Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is especially wisdom for the young. It is a father teaching his young son about the way God's world Works the way God has designed the world to operate, the principles and patterns that God has built into the fabric of creation and the fabric of his providence. Ecclesiastes, you could say, is wisdom for the old. Ecclesiastes is more like a fireside chat with an old man who's lived a long and full life and who has seen it all, and he's going to tell you about it. He's a man who knows that while, yes, The lessons of Proverbs are true. There are certain patterns and principles in God's world. There's also much in God's world that is very mysterious to us. There's a lot in God's providence that eludes our grasp, that is mysterious. And so we can never totally figure the world out. We are surrounded in mist, actually, Ecclesiastes says. We can never grasp the world altogether. Now, we need Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. They go together. They're companion volumes. Proverbs tells a young man how to seek out a woman, identify it as Lady Wisdom, and marry her. Ecclesiastes tells an older man now how to live joyfully with his wife as they grow old together. So Proverbs is about the courtship. He courts Lady Wisdom and then marries her at the end. He makes Lady Wisdom his queen. That's really what Proverbs 31 is about. It's finally happened. He has turned away from the harlot folly and embraced Lady Wisdom and married her and made her, he's a king, she's his queen now. Ecclesiastes shows what it looks like then to grow old with this woman you've married, what it looks like to live a long and joyful life together in this vaporous world. Proverbs shows how simple the world can be. Ecclesiastes shows how complex the world can be. Proverbs makes life look pretty logical. But Ecclesiastes reminds us the world is also mysterious. Proverbs shows us moral patterns. You reap what you sow. Action A leads to result B. If you're lazy and don't work, that leads to poverty. 
Clear connection, cause and effect, reaping and sowing. Generally, Proverbs says, the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. That's a pattern you need to know, especially in your youth. But Ecclesiastes shows us that the world is actually a little more complicated than that. The world is actually shrouded in mist. And sometimes the righteous are going to suffer while the wicked prosper. Sometimes that happens. The reality is we need both perspectives. We need both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But this is the thing. If they give us such different perspectives on life, what holds them together? What joins Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together and makes them one? Well, again, it's this theme of the fear of the Lord. How Proverbs begins, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and how Ecclesiastes ends. This is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is man's whole duty. Fearing God is the beginning and end of wisdom, the alpha and omega of wisdom. Now, let's ask this question. What is the connection between fear and wisdom? Why does the fear of God lead to wisdom? Why does wisdom begin and end with fearing God? Well, there are several ways that fear produces wisdom. Here's one. When we fear God, when we revere God, when we are in awe of God in this way, when we see the godness of God, and when we see how small we are in relation to God as utterly dependent creatures, it humbles us. And when we are humble through fearing God, it makes us teachable. It makes us willing to listen, to submit ourselves to His Word. We're willing to say, God knows best. Father knows best. My Heavenly Father knows best. Fearing God makes us distrustful of ourselves, so we trust completely in Him. You know, if you're conceited, If you're arrogant, if you're brash and cocky, then you don't fear God. You don't think you need God's word. You're in no frame of mind to learn what God wants to teach you. Proverbs 11.2 says, Wisdom is with the lowly. Wisdom follows humility. When you humble yourself, wisdom is poured out upon you. Because the lowly, the humble, will listen reverently and fearfully to God's Word. Psalm 119.98 declares to God, Your commands make me wiser than my enemies and more insightful than all my teachers because I meditate on your statutes. When you listen to God's Word, you grow in wisdom. So you have to humble yourself before the Word of God. And there's other places in Scripture that make this same kind of connection. Romans 11 talks about, you know, don't become proud but rather fear, fear God. Because fearing makes us trustful. Fearing makes us humble. It makes us attentive and responsive to God's word. Fearing God is not some additional responsibility laid on top of everything else. No, as Ecclesiastes puts it, it's really the sum total of our responsibilities towards God. If you take trusting and loving and obeying and worshiping and serving and take all those things together. The glue that binds them all together is the fear of God. Because we fear God, we fulfill all these other duties. Fearing God also leads to wisdom because when we fear God, we fear God alone. Fearing God makes us fearless in every other way. Fearing God is the death of every other fear. See, growing in wisdom... When you become wise, you fear what you should fear, and you don't fear what you should not fear. 
Fear of God overcomes all our other fears. You overcome your fears by fearing God, or you will be overcome by your fears. It's one or the other. You either overcome all your fears by fearing God, or all your fears will overcome you. The fear of God is the death of your other fears. The fear of God kills all your other fears. But again, the reverse is also true. If you don't fear God, you'll be afraid of everything. If you don't fear God, you'll be afraid of a rustling leaf. If you don't fear God, you'll be a coward, overrun with fears. Fearing God produces righteousness, and fearing God produces courage. When you fear God, what God says, what God thinks, matters most. God's opinion of things, if I can put it that way, carries the most weight with you. But again, as we've seen, refusing to fear God produces wickedness. It produces foolishness. It blinds us to reality. And fear really is, in this sense, a zero-sum game. You're going to fear something. What will it be? Will you fear God or something or someone else? Fear drives out fear. You'll either fear God or you'll fear man. Those are ultimately the two choices you have. Either God's voice or man's voice will be dominant in your life. It's another way of asking the question, what is the most dominant voice in your life? Is it God speaking in His Word? Or is it some other voice? Whose voice do you hear? Whose voice do you fear? Again, if you fear God, you won't fear man. And if you fear man, you will not fear God. It's that simple. Psalm 118, 6, the psalmist says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. I will not fear. I don't have to fear men. I don't have to fear what people can do to me because I fear the Lord. If the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of man is the beginning of folly. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of man is the beginning of foolishness. The essence of wisdom, the essence of practical righteousness and skillful living is fearing God. The fear of God insulates you against various forms of the fear of man. Think about some of the ways that the fear of man has a hold on you. You know, there's this thing called peer pressure. Okay? And when you're a teenager, these are the years when you really start to feel peer pressure most acutely, most sharply in your life. You feel this pressure to fit in. And you're easily swayed by the crowd around you. You kind of want to do what everybody else is doing. You don't want to stand out. You want to blend in with the crowd and be a part of things. You want to feel like you're a part of things, like you fit in. You want to have friends, and so you want to be like the people you're around. Well, I've got news for you. You don't outgrow peer pressure when you get beyond your teenage years. That kind of peer pressure is something you'll have to deal with for the rest of your life. But that peer pressure, that's just a fancy counseling term, just fancy jargon for the fear of man. That's all peer pressure is. It's the fear of man. There are some people who can never say no to those around them when they should say no. They'll do anything to fit in because they're controlled by the fear of man. Okay, Why do most underage kids who drink underage, why do they drink underage? It's because they want to fit in. 
They, they want to be a part of the crowd. Maybe there's, you know, there could be other things going on that we could certainly analyze, but this is a huge piece of it. Same with drug use. It's wanting to fit in. It's wanting to blend in with the crowd you're a part of, which tells you you need to be real careful about the crowd you're a part of, the circle of friends you choose, but you also need to think long and hard about whose voice is going to be dominant in your life. Which fear will control you? Our behaviors are driven by our fears. Who do you fear? Do you fear God or do you fear man? I mean, look around at the people in this room with you. Okay, do you fear these people here? Do you fear what they think of you, what they would say about you, or do you fear God? Now, this is a group of good kids. But you know that you could get around a group of kids who would want to lead you in the wrong direction. Would you fear them? What they have to say? They might make fun of you. They might mock you. They might talk about you behind your back if you don't go along with what they're doing. Do you fear that? Or do you fear God? If you were to put their word and God's word in the balance, which weighs more heavily? Which has more glory with you, more weight? Which has more pull? Which gravitational field is going to pull you in? Will it be the word of God? Will that be the gravitational force that pulls you in, pulling you closer to God? Or will it be that crowd? Will they pull you towards themselves and into all kinds of spiritual danger? Sometimes we'll tell lies to make ourselves look good in the eyes of others because we fear man rather than God. We'll tell lies to make ourselves look good. We'll try to present ourselves as something we're not. We want to look a certain way. But it's a, it's a facade, it's a front. But we're doing it because of the fear of man. Or sometimes we'll flatter others. We'll kind of praise others and build others up, but not in a sincere and genuine kind of way. It's just a way of, of trying to gain their approval. That's driven by the fear of man. Why do some people practice flattery? It's the fear of man. If you are obsessed with how you look, what you wear, that's the fear of man. Now, obviously, there's a, there's, a, there's, a pro, there's a proper and appropriate way to think about how you dress and how you look. You want to present yourself in a good way, obviously. You want to make the most of whatever God's given to you. That's perfectly fine. But we all know that there is a way of trying to look a certain way, dress a certain way, that, again, is a matter of trying to fit in, following the fads and the fashions and the trends. That's the fear of man. If you've got to follow those trends and follow those fashions, you've got to always be part of the it crowd, and you've got to be the first to wear this or listen to that or watch this. So often that is the fear of man at work in your life. The fear of man is taking over the way you live your life. We've got to learn to care more about what God thinks than what other people think. You don't totally dismiss what other people think because God uses other people in your life. Sometimes their opinions matter very much. The opinions of your parents and of your pastors and elders and other trustworthy authorities God has put in your life, those opinions do matter. But nobody's opinion matters as much as God's. And when God's opinion matters most, that's when you start to grow in wisdom. That's where wisdom comes from. Fearing God. God's word has to be weightier, heavier, more glorious to you. His words must have pull and gravitas with you. The beginning of wisdom is fearing God. And the end of wisdom is fearing God. Fear God and keep his commandments. 
That's what life is all about. Let me close out with one story here. This is from uh, John Chrysostom, who was a 4th century church father and a man who very much feared God. And because he feared God, he grew in wisdom. He became known as the golden-tongued one. He was a preacher known for his eloquence and his wisdom in the pulpit. Because he was a man who feared God, he spoke with wisdom. And because he was a man who feared God, he did not fear anything else. Fear of God drove out all the other fears in his life. Several times John Chrysostom was brought into confrontation with various authorities who wanted to silence his preaching because sometimes in his preaching he would step on their toes. He would point out the sins of the rulers, the leaders of the day. And at one point he was brought before the Empress Eudoxia and she threatened him with banishment. She said, I am going to exile you for what you're preaching if you won't shut up. But Chrysostom insisted on his freedom to preach the gospel. He said to her, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. And she said, but I will kill you. And he said, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. She said, I'll take away all your treasures. And he said, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. And she said, but I will drive you away from your friends and you'll have no one left. You'll be all alone. And he said, no, you cannot, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. He said, I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. Those are the words of a man who feared God. Now, what's interesting about that story is she did detain him, uh, but there was an earthquake that very night, and she took that as a sign that she ought to let him go. That combined with the outcry of the people. She took the earthquake as a sign of God's anger, and then she also had a lot of people who were angry about the fact that she had imprisoned John Chrysostom, and so she set him free, and he went on preaching. But think about that. Here she is with all this power. She's the, she's the empress. She's got all this political power, but she does not fear God, and so she is dominated by all these other fears. Whereas Chrysostom, who was powerless in a worldly way, feared God. And so he lived fearlessly. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and the wisdom you impart to us through your scriptures. Uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to fear you and in fearing you to also rejoice in you and to love you and to trust you, and to serve you, and obey you, and worship you. And we know all of these forms of obedience flow out of the fear of God. We pray that you would give us the wisdom that comes from fearing you, that your word, your voice, would be the dominant word and voice in our lives, that we would be able to put in perspective everything else others might say about us because we fear you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.